Maurice D. Simone. And I give account to you with joy because of his joy, the joy of the Lord that he shared, that he demonstrated, and the purity of the joy that he showed in his last days, which mitigates my sorrow at his loss for perhaps the greatest display of pure joy that I've ever seen was on his face and on his countenance in his last days as he sang to you, as he witnessed about you. And as he told everyone, whether in the hospital or in his home, all about you. And I thank you for the many decades that we have stood shoulder to shoulder and back to back in spiritual combat, face to face in your word. And it's with sorrow and with great joy that I present one of our heroes to you, Father. Hebrews 11, the chapter on Tetelestai Phalanx is still being written. I feel that I'm standing between heavens and earth and taking from earth and introducing to heaven so many of our number lately. And it's just one of the joyous sorrows and sorrowful joys. Our Prayer and petition to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is for Phyllis, his partner in Christ, and his wonderful wife, his children, Tony, Marie, and Michelle, and grandchildren, and a great extended family. As I said, I've, I've only seen pure joy a few times in my life, and on the face and in the voice of Maurice, I heard it recently, and that's what kind of takes away from the sorrow. I, I didn't e even have any sorrow until I saw you guys, because I know that you, many of you loved him. And um, truer words could not be spoken by a man than I have finished the course, I've fought the good fight, I've kept the faith, and from henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the faithful judge, who was judged for us, will give to me. Maurice could say those words. Our last conversation that I had with him, I said, Maurice, you've, you have finished the course. It's fi you've done it. It's done. The race is finished. You've fought the fight. You've kept the faith. And I said to him, now I know what it means that my cup overflows, because that's all there is left for you now is your cup to overflow with joy. And now... In the presence of his Savior, that cup overflows evermore and with infinite multiplication of joy and peace. The second thing I want to do is express for Pam and I our heartiest and happiest wishes for all of you for Merry Christmas and for a, a blessed 2024 coming up. And... We apologize for not getting cards out this year. Our energies have been pretty flat out on other fronts. 
And we thank you for all your expressions of joy for the Christmas holiday and for your expressions of generosity and kindness, which you've shown to us over and over again. And so our heartfelt expression to you all. And now, as one of my mentors used to say, it's time to shift gears into strict academic discipline. And that's exactly right, because we are in the school of Christ. And in the school of Christ, we owe God our total concentration, but we can't give it without his grace. So he grants us the grace of total concentration. Today is increment 324 of our Hebrew series. It is Christmas Eve, and so I guess this could double as a Christmas message if you want to and if you need it to be. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5, the serpent seductively hissed these words. hos. Theoi, the Greek says, you will be as gods. You, plural, will be as gods, plural. The woman took the bait from the serpent. She bought that line. You will be as gods. Elohim is the word. It's in an absolute plural, and it refers to the triune God, and so the promise was you will be as the triune God. And again, what is the ultimate fruit? What is the final result is the question I asked today. It's the one I woke up with this morning and I always pray to the Lord, I have a message, but I know you have something more. Give me something more. I'm not ashamed to go before him and say, give it to me, give me more. What is the ultimate fruit was the question, the final result of a creature aspiring to be as God. That's the very definition of what theologians like to call sin. What is the ultimate fruit? the final result of a creature aspiring to be as creator, as God, of a human being wanting to be divine. What is the ultimate fruit of that? You will not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the aspiration of the creature to be as the creator, which is the very essence of sin. What would be the ultimate result of eating the fruit? In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What would be the ultimate result of eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? With the hope of being as God who is blessed forevermore, the blessed God, as he's called, in Romans 1.25 and Hebrews 9.5, Romans 9.5. How would we picture with our mind's eye 
the result of that ambition, that endeavor to be as God's. What would be the fruit of it if not a cursed creature, a cursed man, disfigured and misshapen, hanging from the very tree from which that fruit was taken and eaten? The woman was deceived, said Paul in 1 Timothy 2.14. The man, Adam, was not deceived, but he blatantly took the fruit from the hand of the woman and ate it. He willfully aspired to be as God in defiance of God. To ascend, as it were, and to be as God. The result of this violation, this transgression, is death. But a death that can only be the cursing of the creature. This death was endured not by the first Adam, who willed to be as God, but by the last Adam, who, though God, willed to be man, to be as man. In fact, came into the world in the likeness of a man, in reality came into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh to become the sin, the wages of which is the death of the cross. Christ became a curse for us. All of us in the first man. For the scripture the law itself says, cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. The one coming into the world, and he comes into the world on what we call Christmas. The one coming into the world is he who would bear that curse. No, become that curse. Become the curse for every man that is the result of the aspiration of the creature to be as creator who is blessed over all. How would you picture the ultimate fruit? How would you picture that curse if not a man as if on a way to ascend to the heavens to be as God but violently halted in his ascent? Nailed to a tree crying out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Is that not the picture of the ultimate fruit of the creature's aspiration to be as God? Could it be that that man was made to be sin? The curse of the end of the aspiration of the creature to be as God would be perfectly depicted, if we didn't know anything about the cross, it would be perfectly depicted in a man violently halted in his ascent to be as God. Hung on a gibbet like Haman who attempted an early holocaust to the Jews. Hung between heaven and earth on a tree like Absalom whose insurrection against David was, in fact, a rebellion against God. An aspiration to be as God, better yet, 
we would picture it as a serpent wrapped around a pole, like a snake in the desert, writhing in agony. Very ugly image. But I think Jesus said something about that. The Son of Man, who ascended, first descended, and was hung like a serpent on a pole in the wilderness, as Moses hung the serpent on a pole. Better still, wouldn't we picture that creature nailed like a criminal to the wood of a Roman cross? cruelly marred more than any man, disfigured, crying out to God, to the God whom he aspired to be like, a God who had abandoned him, having him suspended between the earth from which he began his ascent and the heaven which he would never reach. Nailed fast and flush, to both beams of a cross, rendered incapable of doing anything at all. For this creature of flesh, this man, had been made to be sin itself by God himself. That the rest of humanity would be made the righteousness of God. This man is the very one whom the Jews and many Gentiles also, as exemplified by the Magi, expected. The one coming into the world, the Messiah. They expected him. But it's pretty certain that the vast majority of them did not expect a spectacle like this. and that this spectacle would be at the height of his appearance. And so that's our leading excursus. That's the first thought. That's the thought he gave me that's beyond what I had prepared. And so for a Christmas thought, let's consider the one coming into the world. The Jewish people held a centuries-long expectation for the Messiah. Genesis 3.15 indicates that first glimmer. Moses said that a prophet like myself will arise from among you, and you better listen to him. That prophet with a capital P is the prophet Messiah. So the Jewish people held a centuries-long expectation for the Messiah. Some of them still hold that expectation because they miss something. <laughs> but they won't miss, ultimately. The Son of God. Ho Christos ho huios tu theu, the Christ, the Son of God, who was waited for as the one who is coming into the world, that's what his name is to them, the one who is coming into the world. Hoais ton kosmo erkomenos. It's a phrase that's used especially in the Gospel of John. This was the expectation not only of Jews and proselytes in Israel, 
but also of certain Gentiles throughout the earth as represented by the Magi from Persia who watched for astronomical signs of his arrival. The one coming into the world is the theme in John's Gospel. It's introduced in the prologue of John's Gospel. In John 1.9, the true light who gives light to all people, it says, is the one coming into the world. The Logos, who is always God, always with God, always God. The true light who gives light, not to some people, but to all people. And that light is the light of life. He gives life to all. John announces this true light who gives light to everyone is the same as the Logos, the word who always was with God and always was God, the same as the only eternally begotten Son of God. John 1.18, 3.16, 3.18, 1 John 4.9, the same as Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and for the ages in Hebrews 13.8. For as many as received him, Jesus was the realization of that expectation. When, for example, the people who witnessed the sign that Jesus wrought with the miraculous multiplication of the barley loaves and two fish, with apologies to Italians who celebrate with seven fish, with five barley loaves and two fish, he fed 5,000, which is more than 5,000. That's just the men. What did they say when they experienced that, the fruit of that sign and that multiplication of bread? They said, this really is the prophet, alluding to Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18. This really is the prophet who is coming into the world who is coming into the world. That is who we've been expecting in John 6.14. The sign that Jesus did illustrated to thousands, and he preached about it later in a synagogue in Capernaum, what I call the manna midrash. The sign that Jesus did illustrated to thousands that Jesus is not only the one coming into the world, but that he has indeed come into the world and as the bread of God. He is the one who comes down from heaven and in his own words gives life to the world. Gives life to the world. John 6.33 He who gives light to everyone and that's called the light of life. In John 1, 4, the light of the world, he called himself. In John 8, 12, the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world is he who gives light to everyone, that is the light of life. He is the same who gives life, the life that is the light of men, in John 1, 4, to the world. In John 6.33, Jesus himself put a point on this and said, I am the living bread. 
that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The word with God on a par with God because he is God, God the Son, who is God, became flesh. His flesh is the living bread that came down from heaven, which is life for the world. John 6, 51. So the one coming into the world who gives light, that is, life to everyone. The days we studied the fourth G, the fourth gospel, the fruit of that study is only coming to me now. It's been germinating and growing. The fruit is being born now. The one coming into the world who gives light, that is life. It is the light of life. To everyone who gives his flesh as the bread which gives life to the world is the same as the eternal word who is, was, and always will be God and who became flesh. It's important that we see that he became Flesh. He took on himself and assumed the inherent weakness of sin-affected human flesh. Who resided with us, says John 1.14, who is Emmanuel, God with us. His coming into the world itself was signified by a sign for as Isaiah says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and you shall name him Emmanuel. Matthew tells us that Emmanuel means God with us. So the word became flesh and lived with us. This is how the one coming into the world came into the world. Martha of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus, was absolutely correct when she said to Jesus, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who was to come into the world, the one coming into the world. In John eleven twenty seven, Martha of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus, was among those who received him, among the minority who received him, to whom, it says, he gave authority to be the children of God. Christmas is the coming into the world of Christ. It is the birth of the one whose name is Jesus of Nazareth. It is the coming forth of Emmanuel, of God with us. Jesus himself sometimes explicitly stated why he came into the world. John is the best for that. Why wouldn't it be the ideal witness who was closest to Jesus than any other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus particularly loved? Did Jesus particularly love this John, this beloved disciple? Yeah. Does he particularly love you? Yep. So it's not wrong for you to think of the you are, I'll, I'll say it selfishly, I am the disciple whom Jesus particularly loves. 
but so are you. He loves the world, but he loves you particularly. You're his favorite. So the disciple had a little bit of a sense of humor, and he said, I'm Jesus, the teacher's pet. I'm telling you that I saw these things. And so John was a perfect place to go to hear Jesus say certain things that we didn't hear in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. But in John 9, 39, Jesus said, I came into this world for a judgment. But then when you read down the road in John 12, 47, he said, I did not come to judge the world. So how do you figure, put those two together. If you didn't get anything out of this message yet, think of those two verses. Do a Bible study sometime with your friends or your family and do those two verses together. I came into this world for judgment, John 9, 39. And then 12, 47, he said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. I came into this world for a judgment. I did not come into this world to judge the world, but to save the world. I put those two together and I come to this conclusion. I came into this world for a judgment in which I will receive the world's judgment in order to save the world. How's that? Paul put it this way. He became a curse for us. Cursed on the same tree from which the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil came. Jesus said, Adam and everyone in Adam now has aspired to be as God without God. But a desperate plight. I will become the very sin that causes them to die eternally. I will become the very expression of what it means for a creature to ascend and be like God and be stopped violently in the ascent. Very early in the ascent, very few feet above earth, I'll be nailed to a tree, violently stopped. I will become the very sin, the very aspiration of the creature to be as God. I'll do it. I am God. I have equality with God. I do not grasp that equality at all costs. I will become as man. I will become flesh. I will become as man after the fall, not as man before the fall. I will depend utterly and totally on my father and say only what my father says and only what I hear my father say will I say, only what I see my father do will I do. I will be totally dependent not on my own human nature not to sin, but upon God. And so I'll be tested in every point like all of them are and yet without sin. I will arrive at the cross without sin. I will be made sin for all of them, that they may be made the righteousness, Father, your righteousness in me. 
There's no contradiction then between I came into this world for judgment and I did not come to judge the world. I came into this world for judgment. Many assume right there, yeah, he came into this world to judge the world. No, he came into the world for a judgment, but not to judge the world, but to receive the judgment and the condemnation that the world, we could say, deserved. In fact, there's a great harmony between these two statements. The eternal word came into the world for a judgment. Yes, indeed, he did. But not to judge, but to be judged. For he came into the world to save the world. To do this, he would and he did receive the world's judgment. He, the Christ, would become a curse for us, become sin for us, fulfilling what all the prophets had said, that Messiah would suffer to enter his glory. And Jesus chided the slow disciples for not getting the point of that. In Luke 24, 26 to 27. And then he goes on to say in John 9, 39, this would result in the blind seeing and the seeing being made blind. Now, part of the meaning of that is I apply it to, our, to us. I'll apply that to us. When we thought that Jesus came to judge the world, or when we thought that he's coming again to condemn the lost, unbelieving, unbelieving world, we were blind. We thought we saw. But we became blinded to that lie by the truth, the stunning truth, the stunning, stunning insight of the universally saving significance of Jesus, that the judge of all became judged for all. We were blind to the truth that Jesus came to receive the judgment of the world and thus to save the world. Now we see. But those who claim to see and who speak of the gospel as the bad news of judgment awaiting the unbeliever, they're the ones that are blind. but they'll be made to see. Jesus came into the world for a saving judgment. For he who is the judge became the judged for us all, not just for some, on whom his elective favor rests. God made him to be sin for us all so that we would all be made the righteousness of God in him. He was made a curse for us so that we would be redeemed from the curse of the law and receive the adoption of sons. When Pontius Pilate asked Jesus if he was a king, Jesus answered and said, you said it. You say that I'm a king. Of course, you don't understand what kind of king I am. If my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would fight. They'd have an armed insurrection against you right now, Pilate. They might even do what Reacher does in the series, throw you out of a helicopter. But then Jesus said, I was born for this. 
I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this. Two things back to back. I was born for this, and I've come into the world for this. He came into the world by being born, born of a woman. He was born of a woman. Paul didn't say born of a virgin in Galatians 4.4. God sent forth his son born of a woman. It didn't mean that Paul didn't believe he was born of a virgin. Of course he was born of a virgin. But he made it born of a woman so that he could be on a par with all of us that are born of a woman. He was like us because he was born of a woman. He was not like us because he was God who came into this world born through a virgin. It's wrong-headed to try to describe or explain the virgin conception and virgin birth by biology. It, it, it fouls the whole works up. To try to explain it through medical science, to try to explain what happened with the chromosomes and with this and with that, it's a miracle, it's a sign, like the sign of the empty tomb, the sign of the virgin birth. He was sent forth, the word ex apostello is used there in Galatians 4.4 that is not used of Jesus anywhere else. When we see him sent from God, it's apostello in John all the way, except for sometimes pempo, which means to be sent on a mission or to be commissioned. Ex apostello is a word that's used of the scapegoat in the Greek text of Leviticus 16 on the day of Yom Kippur. The sins, and I don't agree with some theologians. I do agree, but I don't agree. I think Jesus speaks of both. Both the goats on the day of atonement speak of Jesus because the one goat that was slain refers to him as, a, as being slain for our sins and the one that went into the wilderness with sins on his head is Jesus bearing away the sins of the world. Both apply to him. Just as in the prodigal son, he actually is in the ultimate Interpretation of that, the son who went away from the father into a far country and then came back to the father without sin. He sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Born under the law is also very telling because that means that the law, as Paul taught, is one of the apocalyptic eschatological em enemies of the Christian because the law was hijacked by sin. To be born under the law is to be born under sin in Romans 3.9. And so Jesus came into the world not like Adam was created directly from the hand of God before the fall. He came into the world and took on flesh which is the inherent weakness of human beings after the fall of Adam. Otherwise, there would be no reconciliation. To say otherwise, now I'm, I'm getting a little theological and I'm kind of anticipating where I'm going in the deeper theological realm of this. 
To say that Jesus came into this world as Adam was created is almost to say that he, Jesus Christ does not come in the flesh. Almost to say, like the Docetic Gnostics, he's not like us. He didn't come in the flesh. Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. He came as Adam came directly from the hand of God before the fall. That's how Jesus came into this world. No, it isn't. Born under the law, born under the sin hijacked law. He had a, I'm going to throw this one out because I've already studied this. And so it'll be controversial when you first hear it. He had a nature called flesh, which was incapable of not sinning. That's the kind of nature we have. It's a nature, a human nature. Our flesh is incapable of not sinning. Jesus received the nature that is incapable of not sinning. It can't not sin. And so he did not depend upon his own good human nature not to sin. He had to depend on God not to sin. And did he depend upon his own divinity? Yes. Did he depend upon the Father? Yes. Did he depend upon the Spirit? Yes. He didn't come here as a moral example, you know. If he was a moral example, he was a lousy one because people looked at him and said, that's not a very good moral example. He's hanging out with whores. He's hanging out with drunkards. He's drinking with drunkards. He's cavorting with these people. He's an idle man, and as I said last week, he used to be a carpenter, now he isn't. Why doesn't he go out and get a real job? He's just a wandering preacher. He, he wasn't a very good moral ideal. Of course, he is morally perfect, and they, they, this is how he was viewed. It was the likeness of sinful flesh, even though it wasn't sinful flesh. It was flesh. And that's why in Psalm 22, it says, when Jesus is speaking, the same one who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? As he bore our sins and became a curse for us far from God. He also said, I was cast upon you from my mother's womb. Cast upon you. You were my hope from my mother's breasts. What was he saying? He said, I utterly depended on you, my God, for not sinning. When Jesus, let's throw this one out. He prayed in the days of his flesh, as Hebrews 5, 7 calls it. He prayed to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was hurt. Now, forget what you heard about that so far, and, but remember it, because there's some good stuff that we taught on this. But in, if we go to James, James says that lust, when it conceives, brings forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, results in death. Jesus was praying to the Father to save him from the death that would result from sin, and therefore, he was praying and depending utterly on the Father to keep him from sinning as a man with flesh like you and like me. That's how he could come into this world 
with fallen flesh. If it wasn't fallen, he never would have died physically. He came into this world with sin-affected flesh, but without being sinful and without sinning with that flesh because he was cast upon God from his mother's womb, dependent utterly on God not to sin. And so he arrives at the cross after struggle. The one with two natures, divine and human, had two wills, divine and human. His will, though distinct from God's will and distinct from the Father's will, never became separated from the Father's will. Not as I will, but as you will, means that his human will always remained perfectly obedient to the divine will all the way through to the death of the cross. This gives me much more appreciation of Jesus Christ than I had when I used to think that he came into this world like Adam came directly from the hand of God. Now, Adam did come directly from the hand of God, and the woman came from the man. That's why the woman was deceived, because she came from the man. The man wasn't deceived and couldn't have even been deceived in his unfallen state, because he came directly from God. God breathed into him that life, and then from the Man came the woman. So the woman was deceived because the woman was deceivable. Satan went to her because she could be deceived. He didn't go directly to Adam because Adam could not have been deceived. So what did Adam do? Adam, with eyes wide open and eyes wide shut at the same time, willfully defied, transgressed, and violated the command of God not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because when God came to him, he said, you listen to the woman and ate of the tree that I told you not to eat thereof. So Adam's sin was a transgression, a violation, a willful violation. And so Adam, with eyes wide open, aspired to be as God by defying a command of God and thinking he knew better than God in defying that command. And so that's what Jesus had to come to rectify. And he did by his obedience, even to the extent of death. He had struggles he was tempted, it says. God is not tempted, neither does he tempt any man. God cannot be tempted. Jesus is God. His divinity, his divine nature could not be tempted. But he was also flesh and therefore temptable. Did he feel the pull of temptation like we do? Of course he did. Otherwise, he's not, he doesn't come to reconcile people that he's not like. Now, those are the few theological things I'm throwing out. You see, you have to care. This is why sometimes when people send me things to listen to, I don't listen to them because I'm obsessed. People like, I'm obsessed with this. I'm, I'm obsessed with this to the point where I'm not a normal human being and I don't seem to pay attention to other things. I can't. And so I apologize to you if I 
don't seem to be paying attention. Because my attention is elsewhere. In the study, out of the study, always my attention is. And I'm very carefully treading. This is doctrine that I have to be most carefully treading upon. It's very thin ice. And you can go through very easily. So I'm loading up with scripture like never before. I'm loaded for bear with some high caliber stuff. And so Jesus makes mention to Pilate about being born, coming into the world, and then one declaration, one declarative sentence as he stands before the representative of the Roman beast at Jerusalem. Pilate is the rep of the Roman beast. The beast is Nero. The beast, represented by Nero, is the Roman Empire. Pilate is the beast. He says, are you a king? Because if you are, you're obviously in competition with my king. You're in, obviously in competition with your people, the Jews, who say they only have one king, and it's Caesar. So are you a king? And Jesus said, well, you said it. I was born for this, and I came into the world, he said, to testify of the truth. To testify of the truth. Good answer. That was such a good answer that it floored Pilate. Floored the beast. Took down the beast. Jesus was about to take down the beast through the cross. And so the greatest threat to the Roman Empire and to apostate Jerusalem, its consort, was the truth. Today, the greatest threat to the lie, which is like Medusa, a goddess with many snakes coming out of her head, is the truth. There's a lot of snakes coming out of Medusa's head and a lot of forms of the lies. And they're taught at Harvard and they're taught at MIT and they're taught at all these wonderful institutions that we used to genuflect to in academic awe. They're taught in grade school. They're taught before grade school. Lies. Jesus came into the world to testify the truth. I said to my grandson, I think, it was Adrian. I said, Adrian, what's the greatest threat against the lie? And he said, the truth. And I said, exactly. The truth. It's the truth especially that is in Jesus in Ephesians 4.21, that is incarnate in Jesus in John 14.6, that is inscripturated in the Bible. The word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15, the scripture of truth, graphe aletheus, in the Theodosian version of Daniel 10.21. For example, let me just throw this out and slap you in the face a little bit. When you didn't expect it. The example of a lie that, quote, climate change is an existential threat is a lie that is existentially threatened by the truth that Jesus, God's son, upholds the universe by the word of his power. The lie that climate change is an existential threat to humanity, which is a lie which, if believed, people can grab political power and tyrannize and take away your freedom. That lie is revealed to be a lie by the truth that Jesus Christ upholds the universe 
by the word of his power, and by him all things are sustained. But the world doesn't believe that anymore, so they are tricked and deceived by a hissing, seductive serpent. You shall be as gods. You can, you can save your environment. You can save the world. We can just takes a little bit of Bible, Bible, inscripturated truth to give the lie to the lie. So Jesus makes mention of being born, looking at the clock, and of, by the way, is Keith here today? Is Keith here? Is he? If Keith is here, he can play at the end, so he'll play some cool Christmas jazz at the end, so you can linger as you Depart. If Keith is here, Keith Stebler, our own Keith Stebler. Why did I think of that? Who knows? <laughs> so he came into the world by being born. He was born of a woman. He was born, in fact, of the virgin, of the predicted sign in Isaiah 7:14. His sign of his virgin birth is only matched by the sign of the empty tomb. You can't explain that biologically either. He came into the world by becoming flesh. He came to testify the truth. He is the truth. He is the reality to which he testified. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. That's the most direct statement in the Bible. It's 1 John 5.20. My little children, keep yourself from idols. Everything else. Anything that says otherwise. So the theme, what about Hebrews, you say? You're not, this, you said it was increment 324. Well, it is increment 324 because look at Hebrews 10.5. The one coming into the world is relevant to Hebrews. And I did this a little bit last week. We're on the verge in our verse-by-verse -verse study of this epistle that says in Hebrews 10.5, coming into the world, es erkomanas, Aston Kazman, the one coming into the world, coming into the world, he says, sacrifice. Here I am, a sacrifice. Sacrifice and offering is not what you want, meaning sacrifice and offering, as he explains a little bit down the road, offered under the law. God doesn't want that. God's not happy with that. God's not delighted by that. That doesn't satisfy God so that the world could be reconciled by those sacrifices. So I've come, as it goes on to say, look, I've come. In the volume of the book, it's written of me. To do your will, O oh God. To do your will, O oh God, means to do it impeccably and fully. And finally, even though I'm tested at every point, as you are, Jesus says, I'll do it without sin. I will arrive at the cross without sin, having been tested like all of you have, and yet without choosing sin, depending totally on my Father not to sin, for I have to call upon him to deliver me from the death that would result from committing sin. In other words, he has to deliver me from the committing of sin. And so, I will arrive at the cross not knowing sin. I don't know what it's like 
to sin. I don't know what it's like to choose sin. I don't know what it's like, Jesus says. I do not know what it's like to be tempted and then to alleviate the temptation and the horrible pressure of the temptation. It gets worse and worse by giving in to it. I don't know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to be pulled that way. I don't know what it feels like to do the sin that alleviates the pressure of the temptation. I don't know sin by experience. I've never committed sin. I've never omitted something God wanted me to do. I've never committed. I, I told Pam last night, I said, God isn't going to reward me for all the, ten, uh, the thousands of messages I've preached. I will not be rewarded for those. I will be re rewarded, I, I said to her, and I, she was like, a little bit. She wants me to be rewarded for all my messages because she loves me. But I said, I'm rewarded for the very few times I heard the still small voice of my Lord Jesus Christ and did what he said. That's what I'll be rewarded for. If there are any times like that. The Lord desires obedience and not sacrifice. The only sacrifice God desires is the sacrifice that was the result of the obedience of Jesus Christ, who always listened. I don't say anything unless I hear my father. I don't do anything unless I see my father do it. Imagine having that be the way you lived all the way up to the point when you offer your body on the cross as a sacrifice to sanctify all those for whom he died, which is everybody, and sanctifying them to perfect them forever, in Hebrews 10, 10, 10, 14. Sacrifice and offering is not what you want, but a body you made for me. You made a body for me. You made a body for me. So we're going to go from deep sorrow to laughter. On this eve of the celebration of Christmas, we're asking, what was Emmanuel like? What was he like? What was God with us like? What was God with us like? What was he like? Did he ever laugh? A 17th century Lutheran dogmatician and theologian named David Hollez, H-O-L-L-A-Z. I don't know if I pronounced it right. According to Barth. Bart says, Halas, quote, claims to know that Christ never laughed. I've heard recently preachers say that. And I said before, I've actually heard a pastor that I came up with in the ranks tell me that Jesus never laughed. And I thought about that, and I thought, he never laughed. I've known him for 20 years. He never laughed. He must think he's being conformed to the image of a not laughing Christ. Or he's trying to conform Jesus into his own image. Well, you know, it says Jesus wept. Yeah, it does once. And you don't know why he was weeping. He might have been weeping because he thought people like you think he never laughed. Father... I'm weeping, Father. And the Father says, why, son, are you weeping? There's people down there that believe I have, can't even laugh. <laughs> Which means I'm not human because what a characteristic of humanity is called risibility. 
Look it up in the dictionary, R-I-S-I-B-L-E. Risibility, risible. Risible means capable of laughter. To be human is to be risible, capable of laughter. If he didn't come in the flesh, which is what Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist says in 1 John 4, if he didn't come in the flesh, then maybe he didn't laugh. Maybe he was like the stern preacher. So this becomes the test question, which we're allowing to hover over a few messages of Hebrews 2020, maybe down the road a few more. We see Jesus. Can we see Jesus laughing? I'll never forget the time when a person who was in, my minist in the ministry under my teaching for several years never saw him laugh either. He wrote me a letter upon leaving the church, and he said, I can identify with your tears, but I cannot identify with your laughter. He was offended by my laughter. He probably thought Jesus never laughed, so if you're a servant of Jesus and you laugh, you're a blasphemer. I don't know what he thought. But I never, I, I thought of it and I thought, and I'm not judging the person, all these years I never saw him laugh. And if I said hilarious jokes, which I always do, I mean, my jokes are hilarious. And I'd look over at him and he's like, and then you feel guilty that you cracked a joke. So this is the test question. I say it's a test question because it's not just a funny question. It goes to the heart of the meaning of the word becoming flesh. Of the meaning of the one coming into the world who has come into the world of just who is this God-man, Jesus Christ. And so, I don't want to stay past my welcome today. So I'll just say we'll start with that word homayoma, which you'll find in the Greek, a Greek word in our text, homayoma. It's found in Romans 8, 3, where the scripture says that God sent his son in the likeness, homayoma, of sinful flesh. The complete Jewish Bible translates the phrase in the likeness of sinful flesh as a nature like our own sinful one, but without sin. That was pretty good. A nature like our own sinful one, but without sin. David Stern did a good job on that complete Jewish Bible. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, which has been my go-to for the past few series, says, like ours under sin's domain. He received a nature like ours under sin's domain. The common English Bible that I just acquired last week says, in the same body as humans who are controlled by sin. He came in the same body as humans who are controlled by sin. The word homayama is used in Philippians 2.7. It says that Christ, who is in the very essence and existence of deity, in 2.6, was made in the likeness, homayoma, of men. That means mankind after the fall because it's plural. If it was singular, he would say he was made like the man before the fall. It's plural. It's like all us men, all us people, 
means human beings in the extremely general sense. Therefore, human beings, unlike Adam before the fall, like human beings after the fall. The word like itself in the English includes the meaning to possess the characteristics of. So to be like human flesh is to possess the characteristics of human flesh, which would indicate more than resemblance, which also, which if it was just resemblance, mere resemblance, that's called docetism, which is a Gnosticism that says he didn't come really in the flesh like ours. Docetism, Gnosticism, avers that his flesh was a mere illusion, illusion, like Platonism. This is the doctrine from Antichrist, according to John in the Common English Bible, which says this in 1 John 4, 2, and 3, and I'm ready to close. This is how you know if a spirit comes from God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come as a human, and then in the parenthesis, or come in the flesh, is from God. And every spirit that doesn't confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and you still hear it today in the left behind sir. Antichrist is coming. Guess what? He's already come. He's already in the world. It's a spirit that teaches that Jesus Christ didn't really come in the flesh. It's dangerously close to the spirit of Antichrist, which makes me fear and tremble because I was close... I was teaching this. It's dangerously close to that to say, when he came, he didn't come in flesh like ours, but in humanity like Adam's before the fall. That's not what the Bible teaches. Not what the Bible, that's not Christmas. So you think the babe in the manger goes like this with a halo around his head and doesn't cry. In fact, he doesn't even poop. <laughs> See, that, that goes real human. Did he? Well, of course he did. He needed gold, frankincense, myrrh, and diapers. Did Jesus laugh? We are above laughter. Really? I ain't going to your church. So John 1.14 says explicitly, the word became flesh. Became flesh. This means the word became flesh like ours under sin's domain. So unlike Roman Catholic legend and heresy, Jesus wasn't, as a young boy, forming little clay doves out of clay and then going, <laughs> letting them fly into the air. No, he wasn't. He was a kid, like his brothers and sisters, and Mary did have other children. She's not a perpetual virgin. She was a virgin until Jesus was born. She didn't defraud Joseph for the rest of the time together. Sorry, Joseph, I'm going to remain a perpetual virgin, so stay away from me. Don't touch me. I'm a perpetual virgin. No, that's, that's legend. And so when Jesus was a kid, he played like other kids, and his brothers and sisters not only didn't think he was sinless, they thought he was nuts. 
He's crazy. So he was very much like us. Without sin, though, that's the mystery, without sin. So you'd look at him, and he's had the likeness of sinful flesh. Well, he's with that woman, and she's washing his feet with her hair, crying on his feet, rubbing her hair all over his feet. He's got to be a sinner. No, that wasn't sinful. That wasn't sinful. Putting his hand on a leper. You're not supposed to touch a leper. Put his hand on the leper. Leper was made clean. Wasn't sin. Did a lot of things that was likeness of sinful flesh, but he wasn't sinning. There was no sin. Be careful how you judge people. Be careful how you judge Jesus. And so that's why I say, and I will close with this, consider Psalm 22, 9 and 10, which is the Septuagint, 21, 10 and 11. You drew me out of the belly of my mother. You drew me, he's talking to God, you drew me out of the belly. My hope from my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from the womb. From the belly of my mother, you have been my God. Born of a woman, born under the sin-hijacked law, and therefore born under sin, and God also sent him away into the wasteland of God-forsakenness as the scapegoat. He made him to be sin for us, but lo and behold, he returned from that wilderness where he went with our sins, and he will appear again without sin. He who knew no sin was made to be sin. He became the very depiction and the reality of the creature aspiring to be as God and was nailed in his ascent to be as God. He was being made sin. That's why he was in that very crucified, cruciform shape on the cross. Because it was a picture of sin. It was a picture of man in his aspirational intent to be as God. Stopped dead in his tracks. Arrested in his ascent. Crying out, why have you abandoned me? God, my God. The one who said, upon you I have been cast from my mother's womb. You are my God. Said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But when he was raised from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep. Why great shepherd? Because all humans are now the sheep. The great shepherd means the mega shepherd because he's the shepherd of the whole world that he redeemed and reconciled to himself. The great shepherd of the sheep has been raised from the dead. And raised from the dead, he says to Mary, go tell my disciples. And he, what did he call God at that moment? My God and your God. I will ascend to my God and your God. My God has become your God. Because my God upon whom I was cast from my mother's womb 
By his grace and by his power, I did not sin. I knew no sin. I did no sin. I spoke no deceit. I got to the cross without sin. I bore your sin. I became your sin. I was far from God. Now God raised me from the dead, so I ascend to my God and to your God, to my Father and to your Father. So when you pray to him from now on, you say, Our Father. Our Father in heaven, give us today the bread of the messianic banquet already today. Don't let us crack under the pressure, Father. Lead us not into temptation means don't let us crack under the pressure of the conflict of the ages before the future world. Deliver us from the evil one. We depend upon you. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Jesus, in effect, received the charge in himself. He did not charge the sins of the world to the world. Jesus received the charge, and I will double the metaphor into charge as explosive. He received the charge in himself and let it explode. The explosion was his experience of death, the wages of sin for everyone, the wages of man's aspiration and endeavor to be as God without God, which Jesus endured the results of that to save the world, to save all of humankind. For the wages of sin is death for all mankind, but the gift of God is eternal life for all mankind through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus the Lord, who having been made sin, made a curse, and dying the death of the cross, was buried and then led up from the dead by the God of peace, the God who made peace with the world through the blood of his cross. Amen. We thank you, Father, for this privilege of knowing this one who came into the world. May we know him with the intimacy of identification. May we know him as the one who identified with us that we may identify with him. And we ask this in his name. Amen.